this is Jordan Van Trump with Farm Tank. Farm Tank is an organization I formed for individuals and business owners to learn the latest in innovation, execution, and motivation. I believe there's a huge demand for hearing how others have become successful in life. I'll be traveling the world talking to some of the most influential CEOs and founders to help everyone learn and be more successful in their near future. The agricultural community has been extremely grateful to me and my family, so I'd like to do the same for everyone else and share my insights with you. With that, coming to you live with Farm Tank, Jordan Van Trump. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Farm Tank. I'm on here today with my dad, Kevin Van Trump, and we are also uh, super excited to have Lucy Stitzer on the call today. Um, Lucy is going to be at, it, uh, at our FarmCon conference this January. She'll be on stage with my dad and some friends talking some shop. But uh, before we get started, just a little background on Lucy. Her uh, great-great-grandfather started Cargill as a single-grain warehouse in the, at the end of a uh, Iowa railroad line in 1865. And through the years, her and her family have built this business into the largest-owned company in America. Lucy and her cousin were the first of her generation to sit on the Cargill board, and Lucy served as the director of Cargill from 1992 to 2010. So I think it's uh, fair to say Lucy has been in and around agriculture most of her whole life. Now she has a few new ventures and insights that we're excited to learn more about. And uh, with that, I'd like to welcome Lucy to the show. Well, thank you so much, Jordan. I'm very excited to be here, and uh, nice to chat with you and your dad, Kevin. So uh, thank you very much for having me on. Yep, yep, for sure. Yeah, Thanks for uh, taking the time to be on with us. Yeah, we're going to try to uh, let everyone know. I'm, I'm super excited. Lucy's got checkers scheduled. We're going to try to uh, have her at the event in Kansas City. Uh, she just, like I said, I, I appreciate all of her insight and all of her knowledge through the years. I don't want to say she's fully committed. She's got to check a few things out like all of us and uh, things change. So we're hoping to have her there if things work out. I just want to make sure that's clear. And and for the record, I, I believe Cargo is still the largest privately owned company in America. Um, and it's it's just been crazy. Like uh, for me, I've read the books and the things and the, uh, you know, five generations of building that into to what it's become is, a, is an incredible feat. So I, I'm always thrilled to hear and uh, learn more and listen to some of Lucy's insights. So I'm super pleased she agreed to be on here uh, with us going into this weekend. And Lucy, thank you again. Appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome. Yeah. Cool, cool. Um, yeah, Jordan, go ahead. Yeah, just uh, I guess let's just start the podcast off just uh, with Lucy telling us, telling our listeners, I guess, just a brief bit about your background, where you grew up, went to school, college, first real job, any startups along the way, what life was like younger in, uh, in the family business, so on and so forth. Well, you're sort, of, sort of an interesting background. Um, I was born in Switzerland, actually, and lived there for the first five or six years of my life. My um, father was working for Cargill, obviously, and he was transferred over there to start our um, trading business in Geneva. So, or he was part of a team that started the trading business in Geneva. And then in 1965, he came back to the United States, brought us back. We have, I have three siblings, sisters, and we um, grew up in Minnesota. So growing up, I honestly didn't know a lot about Cargill. You know, this is what my dad did. He was a very um, traditional Scots, Scotsman. So all uh, business was going to go to the boys in our family. And, um, you know, no surprise, everything in Scotland goes to the firstborn son. And so we were four girls and we were just taught to, you know, get good grades, be good people and, you know, marry a nice husband. So that was sort of the, that was the expectation. And, you know, I used to tease him about it all the time. And, and he was like, well, this is the way we were brought up and this is the way it was. So I um, actually, my passion in life was writing um, when I was younger and I loved horses. So I, my mother was very, you know, back in the day, we went, looked around, looked at a couple of colleges and I went to Holland's College, or it's university now. It's in Virginia, so it had a writing team, and it had an excellent writing program because I thought I wanted to be a writer. So that's um, so I graduated from Holland's in 
1982 and went to New York because my father said, I want you to come back to Minnesota and stay here. And I said, no, sorry, I'm going to start my own life and moved to New York thinking I wanted to work for CBS or work in the publishing industry. They did not pay enough to cover the rent. So I said, all right, let me find something else. And I thought maybe, all right, I'll be a lawyer and wanted to go to law school and then come back and work for Cargill and work in our legal department. So I thought that would be a good plan. And so I went as a paralegal, got a job as a paralegal. After working as a paralegal for a while, I realized I really didn't want to be a lawyer. And at the same time, my father said, you could be a lawyer, but you're not coming back and working for Cargill because we only accept you know, you're the men in our family. So I was like, okay, fine. I'll do my own thing. So it actually worked out really well. Ended up working for Citibank and worked there for a while. And then I ended up at Sandler O'Neill, an investment bank for banks. So really understood finance coming from as an English major, thinking I was going to be a writer and ended up in finance was a little bit of a surprise, I think, to everyone, including myself. But it worked out really well. And I got a great background learned a lot by working at both places, had a good career. Um, but because of my unique background, I, my uncle, Whitney McMillan, who was CEO at the time, this is back when, before we, uh, we had a different process. He just selected who the new independent directors or the directors would be. And so at the time, we had a committee which restructured the Cargill board. So instead of just family and a handful of management being on the board. I think there were just seven or nine of them. We expanded it to independent directors. So I was on the committee to, we opened it up to have five independent directors, and then we needed to put a couple directors of our generation on, and my cousin and I were selected to be on, much to the surprise of everyone. Um, so that was in 1992, and so I left my job at Sandler had my first child and ended up on the cargo board and, and did that. But during the time, it was so interesting that I had my child, we have a blood disorder. And so the pediatrician said, you know, you just need to eat really well to stay healthy. And my mother was diagnosed with cancer at the same time. And her doctor told her to eat really well. We didn't really know what that meant. But again, remember, this is 1992 without the internet, not a lot of information. So we just went automatically to organic. We just thought, all right, there's this organic thing going on. Let's just go to organic, and that's the healthiest food. And really, as it turned out, over the years, I realized that it wasn't necessarily the healthiest food, and it's what's in the food. It's how it's made. Organic can be better. It's not necessarily nutritionally better, but conventional, conventionally grown food can be better as well. It depends on the farmer. It depends on how it's processed. It has a lot of different factors on it. So fast forward, being on the board, I'm trying to find a healthy diet for myself. And, of course, my mother subsequently passed away from cancer. But we um, just continued the process of searching always to eat really well to stay healthy. And that's how Dirt to Dinner evolved, is I would go to the grocery store and I would see foods labeled no hormones, no GMOs, only organic. And I'm thinking, well, that's not necessarily true. I know GMOs are great because they help the environment, they help with sustainability, and we can make better crops, have used less pesticides on the, on the food. And I know that you, there is no such thing as milk with no hormones because all cows have hormones. And... You know, so I knew about hormones just from my role on the cargo board and our dairy business, or we are feeding dairy cows. And so I, I just thought, you know, the consumer needs to know this, and they need to know really what is behind our food because people don't really understand it. So that's when Dirt to Dinner was born just a few years ago. Very long answer to your um, <laughs> question. I think that's perfect, Jordan. I think that kind of teased us up into Jordan and I. Well, Jordan, my daughter, Lucy, is uh, she got accepted to Columbia, and she's going to finish up. Uh, she's getting her master's in architect. So she's moved to New York, uh, and she's similar attitude sounding as maybe you when you were in college. Dad, I want to do my own thing. I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't need your help. I'm going to go out and create my own life and uh, – and so she's right. in New York, and I sent Jordan with her to find an apartment because I said, Kenny, I, you know, if there's a, 
you know, pawn shops around and uh, <laughs> burner phone places that sell burner phone. You know, I don't want you really renting and living there. I told Jordan, I said, go up there with your sister and just kind of make sure the lay of the land looks decent and everything. And Jordan did. And he can kind of tell you, and he came back, and he's like, my gosh, Dad. I mean, those, you know, it's a different world up there for sure. Uh, and it was either between New York uh, or she was going to go to California. And uh, she got into both the two or three of the colleges she wanted, Columbia and the one out uh, west. But it was the same same story when they went out there. Uh, you know, all the fake meat all the organic, all the, uh, you know, just really kind of like Jordan will tell you. I mean, Jordan, you said when you were in New York just, just you know, those few weeks ago, it's to really kind of have a misconception about rural America mm. in the Midwest farming. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, you know we is. were walking around with cowboy hats mm. on, and they thought it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> and the huge, like, promotion of uh, – like the vegan, like they're they're just super loud out there with the vegan organic push, fake meat push, and they really, I really don't feel like they know what they're, why they're eating it or exactly. I I don't know if it's there's because they want to just be a part of something, they want to be loud about something, they want to be different, but it's just mm-hmm. a totally different world, and and I don't think they fully grasp or understand well, what I exactly it is, how it's being that, processed. No, I, I don't really think people understand it, and that's, again, why we started Dirt to Dinner. But people want to eat what matches their values, right? So, but what matches their values and what they think they're eating, it might not really match their values. But, but because of all the misinformation out there, they think it does. So let's just, I'm not picking on organic because I think organic can be great. I think conventional can be great. I think so that food is not a choice. It's in order to feed the world and feed a growing population and to be able to be adaptable and flexible when there's droughts or when there's flooding in certain parts of the world to be able to move food around to feed everyone, you need to have all the choices. So you need to have organic, you need to have conventional, you need to have cell-based meat, you need to have plant-based meat, you need to have animal-based meat. You know, it's not just we're pol- we've polarized food just like we polarize our political system. And it's not just a matter of, you know, one choice or the other. It's actually both choices. And let's make, it, let's make things work. So if something isn't perfect, then let's be innovative and creative and make it better rather than, you know, we have this cancel culture now, rather than just canceling something out. And so where people think, oh, I'm only vegan and that's the only way to go, well, that might be great for that person, but it's not great for 8 billion people. And, you know, everyone has their own choices, just like everyone chooses what to wear every day. Everyone chooses what to eat every day, and everyone should have that choice. So I agree with you that on the East Coast and the West Coast, it's very polarized, whereas in the middle of the country, people generally understand where their food comes from because they're part of the system, or at least see the system when they drive around. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I totally agree, and I tell Jordan, and uh, my daughter Kennedy, and when we're sitting around the table, just when we get in our political debates, and uh, you know, as they're trying to develop and come into their own, I mean, it's it's our failure, our inability anymore to agree to disagree that has just driven us all apart. And and social media and the algorithms, I continually harp, are the key. You're you're defined in today's world by, by what you're against more so than the, the, the strings that bring us all together. And, it, and you know, Jordan, like you said, it, it, they want to be against things. And like Lucy mm-hmm. said, you, you, need, you need everything to make this all work. And just because someone has a different choice than you, you shouldn't bash them, uh, you know, and, and that's what we see. If you go, you know, if you go to the coast and you do things a little different, you, you get bashed and vice versa. Uh, sometimes when they come to the Midwest and, and, and they get bashed, you know how it uh, plays out. But, yeah, I, I just truly believe that that's really the case is, is, you know, a lot of people are now defined and you see people wearing the shirts or wearing it, you know, they, they want to hate GMOs and they're going to bash and burn them down. Or uh, when you get into some of the uh, animal anti, uh, you know, animal groups or the, the pro-animal group, it's just such extremes. And uh, those extremes are what's uh, – what I believe is 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 very dangerous. So, 
I, I think you're dangerous. seeing it, yeah, just like uh, Lucy said, and, and not only in politics, but we see it now moving over into food and climate change and, and energy. And it's, I think, though, as you guys, as you think about it and we play it out in our heads, the more we're on social media and the more we're driven by the computers and algorithms, that's really the algorithm's job is to kind of separate us out by our likes and dislikes, and then they get you into small groups and uh, feed you only the information that you want to see. And that's where it gets dangerous. Uh, mm -hmm. When you're only digesting the, the same information and building your case deeper and deeper and deeper, uh, people have to have multiple perspectives. And they have to hear things that they may not want to hear, like Lucy has insight that, uh, you know, like we said, on the dairy side or, or some of the other things. Lucy, you get a kick out of I was eating at a uh, – oh, we were at a big steakhouse in Chicago, and a couple of big cattle ranchers had flown in, and one of my trading friends took us to dinner at, you know, one of the high-end steakhouses. It wasn't Gibson's. It was kind of a more fancy one. It may have been nice. One of them, uh, and they, the waiter comes out, and he gives us the three select choices of beef. And, you know, obviously – it was, we got our standard, then we have our, uh, you know, kind of standard, and then we have this super grass-fed, no hormones, no antibodies, no, you know, no nothing. Uh, never been. <laughs> the cattle ranchers, right. both cattle ranchers, they said, no, we want the one that's been injected with the most, we want the one injected with the most. And these, this waiter, I mean, I thought the guy was going to come unglued. He's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, they're like, no, we want that, we want your standard one that we know has had the proper things done to it and is, uh, you know, is regular. And I just kind of laughed and chuckled. But I've seen that multiple times from, you know, people that actually are dealing with the cattle and actually working on the ranches or working at the dairies. I've, Gordon and I, we've toured working dairy and gone into the dairies and, you know, a lot of our friends. And, yeah, it, it, it's crazy when you hear the misinformation. And it, it's, it's tough on rural America. I, I don't. I don't know how we battle it. I suspect a, an organization, a company like you started, Dirt to Dinner, that tries to help educate uh, the masses is our way we go about it. But like Jordan said, it's, it's going to be a tough road to hoe. Don't you agree? Well, I think it's very tough because people believe what they want to believe. And you go back to social media and if there's something – Jack Bobo, who uh, um, has very good insights on consumer behavior. He writes for Dirt to Dinner every once in a while, and he actually just wrote a book on why we eat what we eat. And it's so interesting is that, first of all, you, you want to feel good about yourself, and so you don't want to think that you're wrong. So you just believe what you read, and it makes you feel better. It's, you know how you've heard about Instagram, where people you go on Instagram and people like your post and every time you get a like, it gives you an, um, an endorphin rush, right? So it becomes addictive. That's why Instagram and Facebook are, and maybe even Twitter are so addictive is because you get feedback on what you've put out. And so if you're reading positive feedback on what you believe and you feel good, it's smart, you feel good. And when you read something that you don't believe and, or you think that is different than what you're, what you believe, then you get uncomfortable, and it's people don't like that. So why are you uncomfortable reading something that you don't believe in? Let's just shift over to the side where it's safe and makes me feel good. And I think that that's very that's one of the issues is that people don't want to change their mind, and they're not always open to new information because it makes them uncomfortable. And that's just human nature. It's not a criticism of everyone. That's just the way we are, way we're built, and. So that the more we're polarized, the more comfortable and the happier we are in our own beliefs, that it's very, very difficult to change your mind. And then you top that on, which I don't know if we want to get into this, but our education system is now becoming very um, one-sided. And you're not taught critical thinking in college anymore. You're having to write your essays and write your papers according to your teacher's beliefs. And you know, people think that's not true, but 100% it's true. And, you know, I have just had three boys that just went through college and they're older now. But that's exactly the way, you know, they went to good schools and this is exactly what happened. And so I, um, you know, hear that over and over again and that 
We're not taught critical thinking. We're not taught to have the capability of having a healthy debate. And we should be debating. We should be debating everything. We should be debating climate change, where it's coming from. We should be debating the best way to grow food, the best way to process food. We should be debating everything and having healthy conversation about it and then coming to a conclusion that, you know, maybe has different insights. So um, I'm nervous about where we are all headed because I don't like the divide. I want us all to work together and I want everyone to come together with new solutions and diverse thoughts. I like diversity. I like new thinking and it's fun. And you actually come out with a better answer when you have diverse thinking at the table. And if you don't have it at the table, you just come out with the same old thing. Yeah, I, I, I totally concur. I, I give the listeners one funny story, Jordan. I want to tell them real quick about So Kennedy, my daughter, like I said, she decides to go up to Columbia. And, you know, my wife and I are like, oh, boy, here we go. And uh, <laughs> it's her and Jordan, University of Arkansas. And, and, and yeah, she, she shifted a lot more to the left, uh, you know, than when she was in high school. And yeah, that's college. And like you said, that's the education system and things of that nature. And then when she went to decide she's going to go to Columbia, you know, bunch of my friends were kind of razzing me and they're like, Oh boy, she's really going to come home. You know, and she says, dad, I had this, she's got an argument class. Uh, it's, it's actually an argument class where they debate things. And the first one right out of the hole was uh, free borders, you know, no borders at all. And she yeah. calls me and says, no, here's my argument. Here's my debate. I said, well, it'll be interesting to hear what everyone has to say or what, you know, and she's, she's, like I said, she's, I let the kids vote how they want to vote and do how they want to do it. And she's become more left-leaning and the class goes down and she calls me the next day and she's like, dad, it's pretty interesting. And I said, what do you mean? She's like, well, the first two people that presented said, what are you talking about? No borders. That doesn't even make sense. You can't even have a country without borders. And I said, what did you, what did you think? She's like, I, I couldn't believe they were saying it. And I said, what was their conclusion? She said, well, the one was from South Korea, and they said, oh, you want to go no borders? Come live where I live and have yeah. no borders in North Korea and tell me how that works. You know, and it was funny, though, because she expected that she was going to hear all this crazy left, real left-leaning talk. And what happened was most of the kids in her class, I think there's only about 25 30% from the United States. Most of them are from other countries. And the other countries were, you know, totally a different perspective than hers. And it was, we love your freedoms. You guys need to have borders. <laughs> you, you need to do these things. You need to have, you know, and they were super appreciative of the freedoms we had. It was just a real big wake-up call, I think, uh, for her. So I loved that she got to see, like you're saying, multiple perspectives from other people mm-hmm. rather than just and people, you know. Yeah. Totally. I think I agree with you. And it's um, people who have lived the hard life in other countries with socialism or living in South Korea, close to North Korea, you know, that fear of North Korea coming down, you know, at any time. And you really appreciate the United States. And when you grow up here and you take this for granted, then your appreciation goes down. And then it's very easy to say, oh, yeah, no borders. Let's let everyone in. Well, yep. it doesn't work that way because, you know, how are we going to pay for all these people that are coming in? Who's going to pay for them? How are they going to get jobs? So it's um, it's actually very interesting. So that was an interesting story. I have my oldest son went to Columbia Business School, and um, my next son is about to enter Columbia Business School in August, and my nephew went there as well. And they all had – I'd say the business school is very balanced and, cool. you know, pro-capitalism and, you know, pro-America for the most part. Yeah. I think I don't – the business school was yeah, very I've different been, than the college experience. Yeah, I've been super excited because, like I said, a couple of her friends she's met, uh, one's from Turkey, one's from India. And, you know, it, it just, like you said, they're super appreciative of their opportunity and the freedoms that they have while they're here. Yeah, and just it's, it's crazy. And it, I think it's made her uh, – you know, I could just tell she's more receptive and open. 
our view of politics and things of that nature around here. So it, 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 it's good. Yeah, it's been real good. So let's talk. Hey, let's talk so, something a little more fun for a second. Let's talk something a little more fun for a second. Tell us uh, about the motorcycles and airplane rides. And, <laughs> for us, well, you like to ride motorcycles and drive airplanes around. Tell everyone. I do. I do. It's a lot of fun. I, um, well, as I said earlier, we had, there were four of us girls, and my dad was, I, I think, very loved us all very much, but I think secretly he wished we were boys. So he treated like we were treated us like we were boys. So we all could ski, hunt, um, or we you know bird hunt, and we could sort of do anything. We knew how to fix things. We knew the difference between I don't know a Phillips screwdriver, and so we knew how to drive stick at a very young age. As soon as we could see over the steering wheel, he taught us how to drive and be independent. Um, so. Fast forward, I have three boys. My husband, I met my husband in New York right away, and that was great. We ended up with three boys, and I love being a parent, love having boys, and I thought, well, I'll always be sure and do something with everyone so every child feels special. So, you know, I'm not very good at it, but play golf with one child, um, one son dive with the other one. That was the special thing that we did together. And then um, my other son, he liked airplanes. So my husband and I flipped a coin and said one of us has to learn how to fly with him because we're not going to let an eight-year-old learn how to fly an airplane you know, without an adult, without one of us learning how to fly too. So we could be part of the whole thing. And so it was me and love it. So he learned. He obviously couldn't solo until he was 17, but it's something that we do together and um, love to fly. So we have... A couple planes. We um, collect old planes. So we have a 1957 Super Cub, which is really fun. It's like riding a motorcycle in the air. And we have a Cessna, just a Cessna 172 that we fly around. That's sort of our go-to airplane that we go places. And then we have a 1950 Beaver, um, a Beaver aircraft for people who don't know. We're sort of a high wing. If you think of the planes in Alaska that haul fishermen and hikers all around it's um that's one of those planes so lucy which one did you fly low level across a long distance oh so that was fun so that but the two of my boys worked on a cattle ranch out in wyoming for a summer it wasn't a dude ranch it was actually a cattle ranch where you take care of the cattle and um raise them from from calves or just calves and so we um they were out there and I thought, you know what, I'm going to take the Super Cub and, out and go out and see you guys. And so my oldest son wouldn't go with me. He's like, I'm not flying with you. I'm like, thanks. And um, so I was like, all right, I'll just go by myself. It's fine. And then Parker said, one of the boys said, you know what, Mom, why don't you take someone with you and take this person that's a friend of ours who's also a mechanic in case something happens to the plane. Because remember, it's 1957, so things go wrong with antique airplanes. And so the two of us flew, um, I mean, we flew very low over the ground the whole way from Pennsylvania to Wyoming and back. So it took us 22.5 hours in the air flying. I think sometimes the trucks were going faster than we were with headwinds. And we had a great time. It was really fun. And we stayed out in Wyoming for, I don't know, almost a week and then flew back. So it was a really... 500 feet over the ground or 1,000 feet over the ground um, was very, very fun. And we met all kinds of people when we stopped for gas because we didn't stop at major airports. We just stopped in very, very small airports. So we had quite an adventure on the way out and quite an adventure on the way back. Dang, that sounds awesome. And you and your husband like to – you ride motorcycles around, right? Well, that's the thing. So I try and, you know, do everything with everyone. And – yeah. My husband likes motorcycles, so I'm like, great, you know, I'll, I'll get on that bandwagon too. So we love it. It's so much fun. It's I don't know what I like better, when I'm in the air looking down at the countryside or when I'm on the ground <laughs> riding my motorcycle around the countryside. Um, so we have, um, you know, a Triumph. We have a BMW, and um, I don't know, my husband has collected a couple old Indian motorcycles. Those are heavy. Um, but we just ride around, and I love it. It's just fun. I, I don't know what to say. It's just we don't ride around where there's a lot of traffic. We have, we're in rural Pennsylvania, 
um, in the summertime, and we just ride around, look at the countryside, look at rural America. But, you know, when you're riding around and we're in, I'd say not, I'd say one of the poorer counties of Pennsylvania, Sullivan County, and you look at all these old dairy farms that are fallow, and you think, you know, how do we get economic viability back in rural America? I mean, what do we have to do to to get there? And, um, you know, I think there are a couple things. I think one of one of my issues with overall America is we don't eat well. You know, we have diabetes, we have heart disease, we have cancer, and a lot of that comes from your nutrition. And... Um, and a good part of your nutrition and a significant part of your immune system is eating fruits and vegetables. Very simple. I mean, it's just if you ate five to seven servings of fruits and vegetables every single day, you could probably mitigate a lot of diseases. Now, you wouldn't even have to give up processed food or whatever else that you're eating. You could just eat your fruits and vegetables. And your microbiome in your gut actually creates antibodies that will help your immune system and help you fight off and ward off pathogens. So it's not the cure-all. Of course, there's, you have to get, you know, enough sleep and you have to exercise and, you know, there are other factors in life, but your diet is really a significant part of your health. And fruits and vegetables are a key component of that. So why don't we have more people growing and why don't we have a better market for fruits and vegetables? And the reason why, it's expensive. It comes from California. It comes from certain parts of the country. There are pockets, certainly, on the East Coast, pockets in Maryland, pockets in Pennsylvania. But why don't we make it easy for farmers in, like where I am, in Northeast or Northern Pennsylvania, to grow fruits and vegetables and have access to farmer's markets and have access to the consumer? Um, and it's cheaper. I mean, you know, a lot of what people don't realize that if you are on a low income, you have a low income, it's cheaper just to buy mac and cheese out of a box and a hamburger and maybe some chicken than it is to buy your five to seven servings of fruits and vegetables every single day. So why can't we have a greater system of growing, transporting, and purchasing um, the fruits and vegetables? The other part that I think can help rural America is aquaculture. We've talked a lot about, or we've, I'm sure people have seen the movie Seaspiracy, which, you know, is dramatic and not entirely full of truth, but still, we know that our oceans are getting overfished, and we know that you're eating a lot of tuna, and you're eating swordfish, and the bigger fish, and you're getting a lot of mercury. Um, I actually have too much mercury in my blood because I've been eating too much fish. So it's, you know, fish is good, but farm fish is great, and why not create indoor um, farmed fish facilities in rural America to distribute out to the rest of the country? Farm salmon, um, farm tilapia, if you can farm shrimp. You can do it all indoors. It's clean, safe. It provides employment. Um, so that's another solution for rural America is to get back on the food production side instead of just being fallow fields with people who... Um, can't find some place to work. Boy, I agree. Jordan and I will travel around uh, the country, and when I go to speak at all these different places, and it's sad to see all the town squares and the, you know, just the old towns that are uh, right. really decimated. And I, I, I learned something new, and I, I, I tossed this one out to you, and this one kind of tripped me up a little bit. And this goes back to my daughter with uh, the architect. A lot of the big push now in architect is to change some of these urban blighted areas. And they had a big study she was part of. And she's like, Dad, I think I've kind of come to some conclusion on what's happened out here in these rural American parts. Because we grew up in rural America. I threw hay in my whole I'd lived on a farm out in the, uh, or lived out in the rural areas. And um, she's like, think about it like this the superhighways. She's like, as we built more and more superhighways and as transportation was able to take us, just like Lucy said on her flight, she had to stop a lot of places with that 57 airplane. They used to have to take winding roads through these small rural towns and used to have to stop and get gas, used to have to stop and buy things, used to have to stop and do things, and it brought a lot of uh, people through and that, that created jobs. And 
now is I can travel in my, uh, you know, in my, my diesel pickup and go seven, 800 miles and on a super highway and I never have to stop between here and Chicago. Uh, it, it, it really, really, truly has changed rural America. And I, I, you know, after listening to her study and what they presented on how a lot of the superhighways impact and, and our transportation is going to impact what happens in some of these smaller cities, in smaller rural towns, I, I'm, I have even bigger concerns. Uh, I, I just mm-hmm. don't know. I mean, it's interesting to think about. If you think about how we traveled and used to travel in the 50s and, and those things with the cars, uh, I, I don't know. If that all changes and shifts, and we go driverless and electric, and you can travel hundreds of thousands of miles without a refuel. I, I don't know. It, it definitely brings a lot of a uh, question to the table. So, well, so there has to be a reason to go to these towns, and the reason to go would be to collect your food, or to have no, them. Yeah. You know, I mean, we I interviewed um, great conversation with Dave Albert from Misty Mountain Farms. It's on Dirt to Dinner, and you know, he raises beef, and it's promotes it locally. He sells it all around the state. And it's, it's like basically he's a local beef provider. And it does very well. He grows his own feed, supplements it a little bit. And his cows do very well. Or, you know, he does very well yep. selling, having, a, having his operation. So why can't we have more of that? And um, I don't know, and just promote food. Or maybe, you know, give people a leg up to start a farm. And then, you know, get them going and, and have a distribu- distribution and a transportation system to more farmers markets. Right. Or there's indoor ag, you know, I mean, that's happening all over the place too. So people can grow lettuce and tomatoes indoors that can provide, we have the best food system, the safest food system in the entire world and why we can't just continue to promote it and continue to feed ourselves is and feed people and help feed ourselves well help feed ourselves and help people have economic viability and instead of just handing them money it just it just doesn't doesn't make sense jordan what are you saying from your younger generation yeah my my question is how do we how do we get people back to rural america or to stay in rural america i mean all my friends here they're all Western Kansas people, and they're from small towns, grew up on farms, and they're, we're 25 to 35 range, and it might change as we get older, but as of right now, they don't, they don't really want anything to do with going back to the farm or moving back to that small town. They're, they're, I guess the argument is there's really just nothing to do and not, not a lot of people to talk to out there and kind of isolated. So I guess my question is what what do towns or – what not need to do to get people to stay and get people to move into that area. Well, then you have, so you need innovation. You need things that are exciting. So I think, I think actually aquaculture is exciting or it could be. I mean, you just have to bring jobs in with new industries um, or new ways of doing the same thing. I mean, I think farming has gotten, it's very different than it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it's much more innovative, much more creative. You have, um, I think it's much more sophisticated. Yeah, I would agree with that. So so I think younger people are actually, or some, you know, in some places that I've talked to, younger people are very attracted to it because they know that they can make a difference and they know that it's a different, they know that they can be more efficient and grow food more sustainably than their parents could or their grandparents could because just the technology is better and our knowledge is better. We know more about the soil microbe. microbe. We know we have better equipment. Um, I think think that misinformation thing, I was was speaking one time. Do you remember when I told you and a guy stood up, he was a farmer, and uh, he was was almost teary-eyed talking about his daughter's softball team and how – you know, a lot of kids on the team were razzing. She was playing on some traveling team with a lot of city kids and different things. And her dad was a farmer and this and that. And, uh, you know, just a lot of misinformation about farming and that, you know, he was doing this to the environment and that to the environment. And she would come home and ask him these questions. He's like, how the hell do I battle it? You know? And 
I I don't know. That's the whole thing. I I had kids come to my office Lucy before that were at a Chipotle concert concerts put on by Chipotle, and they said yeah there were these free concerts, and all they had to do was go to these three or four stations, and at the end they would get a free burrito and they'd get to go listen to these bands from the West Coast. And uh, I asked them what the stations were, and they said oh really nothing, just informational stuff, kind of about how our agriculture is bad, you know, don't want to eat GMOs and how the hog production's bad. And I said, well, what'd you guys think? Oh, it's the same stuff we hear all the time. I'm just like, I said, just, it's crazy, you know, but I mean, if you're being influenced at that age and getting to go to a free concert and, and I can see, mm-hmm. I can see the play by a Chipotle or these other restaurants because they can charge a bigger premium or a bigger margin. Uh, you know, so I, I, I see the marketing spin and why they're doing it. It's just, you know, man, it's like it's really going to be tough for rural America uh, and the farmers to battle that perception or that front. And I think that's what well, Jordan's seeing yeah. among all his friends. You know, it's like he'll come home and tell me, he's like, Dad, these kids are from out there even and <laughs> are swallowing it, it, the same crazy uh, propaganda. Don't you think, Jordan? I mean, they're from there. Yeah, I mean, the and the worst I see is like with the livestock industry. Honestly, just with how people are perceived of all these people raising cattle or hogs or whatnot or chickens or they're all, it's all like animal cruelty Mm -hmm. is what a lot of them believe or I can't believe they would do that. They shouldn't even be raising them at all and I just think they fail to understand how it all works and why it is what they do and how yeah, the operations told, work themselves. Right. Remember, I said right. and, about Beyond Meat, Lucy. They Beyond Meat and uh, a couple of the others came. We we had early opportunities to invest way way early, and uh, we passed uh, all times uh, several times. And I started pulling and asking a lot of younger kids just anytime I was out why they liked it or why they wanted it, and and their answer was, and I didn't never would have guessed it was. They, they want to, they don't believe in animal cruelty. They, they want to stop it. And I'm like, that's why you're buying the fake meat or the plant-based meat. I thought it was maybe for climate change reasons or this, that, or the other, but no, every almost, I bet 99% of them said that. And Jordan, you, you agree, don't you? I mean, that's what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And even, uh, I saw lately that, uh, that is Canada goose jackets, those big, those like thousand dollar jackets or whatever, those nice ones. I guess uh-huh. I mean they're up in New York and all that, but I guess they've been they're gone to like they got the fur around the hood and they're like fur free now. I guess they've been catching a ton of backlash on uh animal <laughs> cruelty stuff and I guess it's been crushing their sales. So they've they've I just saw that I think this week that they've gone to fully fur free jackets and whatnot. I mean huh. interesting. So, I mean, this is where there there is a ton of misinformation out there. And, and, you know, I've been to a lot of dairy farms and I've been to a lot of meat processing plants. I've been to a lot of ranches and, and feedlots. And nowhere have I seen animal cruelty. It just, you don't have it. In, in order, let's just take dairy, for example. If an animal, if a dairy cow is not treated well and is not happy, she's not going to produce milk. We have a lot of people in this world, and they need protein. It's just there's just no two ways about it. And in order to get your protein from plants, you really have to work hard at it, and it's expensive. So, and you have to supplement with protein powder most for the most part. I mean, I eat meat, and I have a hard time getting all my grams of protein. You know, I work out a lot, but still, you just I, you need your protein, and um, it's just easy. It's efficient, and as most farms, I'd say, I mean, there are certainly the outliers where they treat the animals poorly, absolutely, and that's wrong, it's bad, and they should be shut down and gone to jail. So I, I um, but animal welfare is really in the best interest of the farmer. I mean, I go back to Misty Mountain Farms. He loves his cows. He treats them very well. You know, he's not cruel, and when they go to the feedlot to get finished, they're treated very well. So, you know, cows and chickens are not humans. They don't require a book to read or Instagram or television or movies or to go to college. They have a different brain, a different 
their standards of living are different. So standing at a feedlot with your friends eating food, as long as you have shade and um, protected for the wind and from the weather, life is good. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So, Jordan, what else we got? So, um, I, I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, – We've been talking about the fake meat and all that type of jazz and, I guess, loop indoor agging into all that. But how, how big of a splash, I guess, does this make in the agriculture we know today and we've known in the past? I mean, we got money flowing into all these uh, companies like Beyond Meat and uh, App Harvest and Vital Farms and whatnot. They're all going public um, via SPAC. And, it's I mean, getting all this money, it's only a matter of time that these companies have an improved taste and they become cheap enough to become highly competitive with corn and regular livestock and whatnot, I guess just how big of a splash does this make in your opinion moving forward? Uh, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, I, I, um, when you certainly it's complicated to raise an animal or a bird and put it through the whole system, you know, raising the, uh, the feed or growing the feed, raising the animal, processing it, packaging it, and getting it to the grocery store. That whole supply chain absolutely is it's complicated and, and fraught with you know, care and concern to make sure that the food is safe, right? Because animals have pathogens and you want to make sure that the meat doesn't have the pathogen or doesn't take the pathogen to the grocery store. So there's just a lot of work to be done. It provides a tremendous amount of income for this country. And, um, you know, all the way from, again, from the dirt to the dinner plate. But so let's just think about this, the new meat. We have animal-based meat, which we've talked about. We have plant-based meat, which you could actually make at home with mushrooms and, and black beans, or you could buy it at McDonald's or Burger King um, with Impossible or Beyond. So we have meat that's made out of plants. Then you have meat that's made in a lab from cells. So that's, you take, um, like Memphis meat, they take cells from part of an animal or a bird and then grow it in the lab, nurture it, make the right cells grow and have it turn into duck or, you know, a hamburger or, you know, a steak or whatever it is that you want. But now there's a fourth category, which is very interesting, that is not highly recognized. It's meat made via synthetic biology. So that would be taking like a mushroom. And there's a company that really takes mushrooms, ferments it, and then turns it into meat or a meat-like substance. And then you add the flavoring and everything to make it a crab cake or to make it maybe chicken or to make it whatever you want. So will those scale? Will those be better than meat? Can they make them, like, will they be more advantaged? You know, one of the disadvantages of you eat too much red meat and you eat parts of the cow that maybe are a little bit too fatty, you know, that's not really, that's not great for you to have every single day. So, but could you eat red meat every single day if it had omega-3, you know, added into it and it tasted like a steak, looked like a steak? Maybe. I mean, I, I think it will be interesting to see a, how it scales, how it's distributed, how the shelf life lasts, and whether the cost can come down. And I think it's very, there are predictions that say that the alternative meats are going to be anywhere from 50% to 100% of our whole meat market in the next 10 years. And I, I, I honestly don't have a, um, I, you know, I, I don't have a telescope to see exactly where this is going to come out. But it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see consumer acceptance. So if consumers don't accept GMOs, which are very simple, are they going to accept synthetic biology? So synthetic biology is just a whole new field. We're going to write about it um, soon in Dirt to Dinner. We're going to have some podcasts on synthetic biology because I really think that it is a very interesting way of creating the same product. So you can make furniture, you can make clothes, you can make food in a lab and with changing the structure of the DNA, of the DNA. So that is a whole different world and, than GMOs. So will the consumer accept it? I don't know. You know, wow. if we're having a hard time with GMOs to eat fermented mushrooms as meat, 
I, I don't, with maybe different mm-hmm. DNA in it uh, from a different organism with as part of the fermentation process. Is that going to fly? I, I, I don't know. Hmm. A lot of moving parts. A lot of moving parts. For sure. And how to scale Jordan, it. And then what do you do? Anyway, so there's a lot to talk yeah. about there. Yeah, I agree. And it seems like, you know, Lucy, to tie that in, you know, as people are now being allowed to allocate their money a lot differently than they were in the past. I mean, now you can be a California teacher's pension fund. You can allocate and push your money uh, in many different directions with the fund managers. You know, that's where that, um, you know, perception or propaganda how it's digested is going to make a big, big difference because that's what we were hearing from Beyond and some of the others. They were like, we can't believe the amount of money coming in that Wall Street wants to push in our direction. And like I said, that's, it's being, you know, it's being driven. You can now allocate your funds or your retirement funds or your pension funds uh, many different ways. And, and, and people like you just said, they're going to make choices on their food based on what their, uh, on, on their preferences. And I think they're going to push their money uh, in those directions as well. So, you know, uh, all that kind of is full circle and, and how this moves forward. So it's, it's going to be interesting. I'm with you. I, I don't, I don't know how it plays out, but it, it certainly seems like there's some potential for it to gain some pretty big traction. If, uh, we continue to hear all these different social media views. So I don't know. Right. Well, and, and, and the social media then are driving the money. Right, because people right, want to go right. into yeah. sustainable, you know, animal welfare, all you know, all the different things that that concern them with their values. So that's where yeah. the investors are going to be telling the funds to put their money. Um, right, it's sort of impact investing with a profit. Uh huh. But it's kind of back to what you said. I thought it was interesting when you said, you know, you get that uh, endorphin drip from the likes or dislikes, and it's it's almost like you can go on, you know, you go on TikTok and do some footage of uh, animal cruelty thing and, you know, you're going to get 5 million likes and, you know, and it's just, it's crazy. And that's what fuels and propels it all. And then that directs people's money. And then next thing you've got to come, you know, it's just, so it's just all one big crazy cycle and it'll be. Well, totally. And if I, if I were to go on TikTok and take a video of happy cows in a barn eating yeah. their hay with music <laughs> piping over the speakers and fans on, would that get any TikTok likes? Probably maybe three. Problem. I mean, it's, you know, because it's boring, right? There's nothing, there's no story there. There's no line. There's no, like, firing people up to take action. Uh, it's just like, oh, that's nice. That's kind of boring. But that's the way it is. No, I agree. So, Jordan, we want to kind of wrap up. We want to, uh, t- I want to touch base on one last thing, though, Lucy Ford, and you could probably give me some insight. Um. Jordan, don't you agree with, on the woman in ag? Yeah. Yeah, if we have yeah, time, do we have time, Lucy? Or? The, the, sure. You got a minute, Lucy. Yeah. Yeah. The, the reason I ask this is here. here's my here's my dilemma to you and my question. I've asked this to a few people, but none that I think would have a better answer maybe than you would. So about three or four years ago, well, maybe three years ago, I kind of got blown up by it. There were a few women uh, that had started a couple of startups and some other things. And this might blow us up, but kind of blew me up a little bit on Twitter, sent in a couple of emails that, hey, all, all you ever have at your conference is on stage is a bunch of rich old white guys. And it really threw me back because, like I told you, my daughter kind of battles at an architect, and, uh, and, and I'm very – I feel like I'm very well aware of it, and I've tried to do everything in my power to always help people who I felt, you know, uh, needed to help up, needed something. And what's funny is that year that I got blasted by it, we had probably sent out, I bet, 30 invitations to different women that I wanted to be on stage, but it was always just a conflict. You know, maybe they had a scheduling conflict. Maybe they had something with their kids. Maybe they had something. And it just, they're just, maybe we only had a couple of women that year, wasn't it, Jordan, that were on stage uh, mm-hmm. with us? And I just, three, maybe. Kind of, yeah, three, three women. 
uh, and I was just thrown back by it. And I told my wife, I said, I have done nothing, but I feel like help promote women. I always felt like even in Chicago, when we were in our trading firm, we'd always said, you know, behind closed doors and, and privately, and we were like, man, if we could just hire more women traders, we're like, they're the best. I mean, they seem to take care of the most detail, they're the most detail-oriented. I mean, we loved having the women trader. It was just, it was hard to get. And, uh, you know, I sit here and I've read a few things that you've said or listened to a few uh, uh, interviews you've been on. And I love the fact that you say, uh, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, that you hope you are invited to this conversation and hope you're invited, FarmCon, or these other things you've done in life because your qualifications and because you, you you do walk the walk and talk the talk. So my question is, how do I get more women involved? Because I tell the women, I said, listen, when I go out and speak, I'm just going to be honest with you. When I go out and speak across rural America, it's 98% white men age 35 40. to 70 or something. You know the demographics. And there's right. just not a lot of women in the in the room. And there's not a lot of women uh, uh, at a lot of these things. So it's, uh, you know, I, I do feel it's my obligation to have women, uh, more women involved and to get more women involved. Michael, how do we do it? How do you get, how do I get those women? How do I, how do we go about that? What, what should the industry be doing? Or do you have any opinion on any of that? I, well... I can, as I said earlier in our conversation, we were a very male-oriented business. And I'll just tell you our experience, and then maybe this will help. And, you know, we were looking at life, same thing, from an older male, white perspective, right? And that was sort of how my grandfather had the business and how my father's generation had the business. And now we fast forward to our generation and that just doesn't work because you need diversity of thought. You need people with different upbringings. You need different people who look, can look at the same complicated set of um, the same complicated problem with different lenses, and so you can come up with a different solution. Plus, it just makes the conversation more interesting and um, more fun and more viable. So. The more you have conversations with a variety of different people, the more you're going to attract a variety of different people. So I know you've tried at the conferences, and so maybe you have a woman-only conference. Or, but, but that's wrong because then you're excluding men, right? So then that's no good either. But maybe you just make sure that at the next conference you have you know, half and half on the stage and make sure you make the stage as diverse as possible. But the problem is you want to make sure that you have diverse people who have qualifications too. You know, there's, there's that. I mean, there's no sense. I don't want to be a woman up there just because I'm a woman. I want to be a woman up there. Actually, I just want to be Lucy up there contributing what I know and what I think I know. And if I can't contribute, I don't want to be up there just because I'm a woman. I mean, that's silly. And I think most women feel that way. Um, right. But as I said, the more you have different people invited to the party and part of the conversation, the more you'll attract different people. But if you don't have the different people in the first place, then you won't attract them. And I think it takes time and it takes momentum. Um, so I, I don't, I, I'm sort of an outlier because I, as I said, my dad treated us like we were boys, but then again, we were all very feminine and we all are women, right? And we all, we just like to do fun and different things. And, um, you know, we can look at the world from both a male perspective and a female perspective, which is kind of interesting. So I, I don't know. It's I just think yeah. the more people, the more women you have and the more diversity you have, the more you'll get. But yeah, I would I also push back and, and tell the women who's, who blasted you and say, listen, I invited 50 women and I only got three. So, you know, it's not like a lack of effort. No, I, I agree. And that's a little bit of the issue. It's like I said, you just, the pool of, it, it's even the diversification uh, with blacks or Hispanics or whatever it may be. Right now, which right. I've already, there just aren't very many that 
that are at the conferences. And it's not, you know, maybe that they don't uh, want to be. There just aren't there just aren't many in the space. So it's like, you know, it's just it just becomes uh, tricky and tough. So, but I think yeah, I think more and more women. I, I like I said, I, I love hearing. Uh, all perspectives because as an investor and a trader, I know how important it is to not be blindsided and, uh, and to get tunnel vision. So, yeah, I, I think it's great. I think, you know, what you guys are trying to do is awesome on your end. So Jordan, we'll wrap it up. And Can I, I end with it. one thing that I just yep. think is really important with overall with our country and with the world and, and where we're headed? And, you know, I look back and we started out with, Cargill, and I, I just have to say that the reason why we've been in business since 1865 and family-run is because we have a great value system. And all our employees, we have very diverse, obviously, employees, for, you know, 160,000, but everyone has a good value system. And everyone, for the most part, I mean, I can't speak for every single employee or every single person, but everyone does the right thing. And, and I think that in order for our food system to be successful and in order for us to be able to feed, you know, seven, eight, nine billion people in the world, you have to do the right thing. And you have to raise food so it's grown sustainably. You know, you take care of the earth, you take care of your employees, you take care of, the, you know, the whole system, and you take care of the animals. And, um, and at the end of the day, you take care of who we're feeding. So we create healthy food. And we have a good, um, we just do the right thing and have a healthy, strong, sustainable earth and healthy, strong, sustainable people and workforce that can provide the food. But the more we become divided and the more we try and take apart our food system, the, actually the harder it will be to get there because then we're all taking sides, we're all picking at each other, people get defensive and it doesn't promote best thought. It doesn't promote diverse thinking. And it doesn't promote unity. And food can be a way to bring our country together instead of dividing it apart. Because division doesn't work. You know, think about the Civil War. That yeah. didn't go well. I mean, you know, it ended. But it, it's, um, we don't want a divided country. And food can be the great unifier. So I just wanted to. Not that I'm lecturing, don't want to do that, but I just feel strongly about it. No, but I think you're right, and I tell I tell our kids, you know, there are only a few, there are only so many things, a few things that that keep us together as a country, and those strings, uh, you know, because we're all different, we're all diversified. One, in my opinion, was the and still is the American flag. So when I see yeah people start to take shots at the flag, it upsets me because of the fact it is one thing that allowed us to have a common thread. Food, as you bring up, is another thing that allows us to have a common thread. You know, whether you're black, white, Hispanic, uh, whatever it may be, uh, a lot evolves around the family dinner table and food and, you know, celebrations together. And a lot of that stems back to food. And so there it is again. If you're going to take shots and really start to divide the food, you're taking another shot at one of the few things left that keep us all together. And it's, uh, you, you bring up a great point there. That's, that's, that's very good to think yeah. about. There's just not a lot that keep us all together. You know, like I said, food, flag, maybe sports, maybe things with our families. But, yeah, and as we start to get divided more and take shots at those things, uh, yeah, it's going to be difficult. Yeah, my sister and I have, you know, we, she has three girls. I have three boys, and um, another sister has um, two children. And among us, we have, of course, people who eat meat. We have vegans. We have vegetarians. We have, you know, people on all kinds of special diets and the girlfriends or the boyfriends. And But we all come to the table, and we all just make a bunch of different food for everyone. And we all yeah. sit down, and we all enjoy each other's company. And that's what it's about. It's not about who's eating what. It's all about, okay, let's just make sure that we have the right food for, for everyone. And that's uh -huh. how we should be living our country. You know, you can have whatever diet and whatever kind of food that you want, great, but open, be open to what other people are eating too. Right. True. Very true. So, so anyway, well, Jordan, I'm sorry. 
No, heck no, that's great. Jordan, you got anything else? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess um, let's wrap this thing up. I had one last question I asked a lot of people on my podcast. I would uh, just love for you to tell our listeners one piece of advice or life lesson that's had the most impact on Lucy Sitzer. Um, well, of course, do the right thing. I think don't be afraid of failure. Um, I've certainly made a ton of mistakes, and where I've grown the most is through failure or through mistakes. Uh, my, as I said, my one of my sons is a golfer, and you know he'd do take go in a lot of golf tournaments, and he'd come home sad if he didn't do well. And I'm like, you know what? That's where you're going to learn the most. You're not going to learn a lot when you win. You're going to learn the most when you, you know, are five over or whatever, you know, when you, when you don't do well, when you don't score well. So I'd say don't be afraid of failure. Embrace failure. Learn from it and move on. And then find your passion. Like what makes you excited? What is it that wakes you up every day and that you feel you can be productive and you can contribute back to the world? Um, and when you find your passion and you can learn from your mistakes, then the world is whatever you make of it. Sounds, sounds, uh, yeah, great advice. I agree for sure. I tell the kids the same thing, but try and fail fast, fail fast and often. <laughs> and then you, uh, <laughs> you it doesn't always work pivot. that way. Unfortunately, <laughs> definitely <Exactly>. doesn't. <laughs> you're right. You're right. I know. So, well, I sure appreciate it, Lucy. I know Jordan does as well. And heck, we look forward to it. Anything we can do to help you guys and dirt to dinner folks is trying to make a difference. And, uh, is definitely in our corner fighting the good fight. So we appreciate it, Lucy. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Kevin. Thank you, Jordan. It was great to chat with yep. you guys. And um, talk to you soon. All righty. Thank you. Sounds good. Goodbye. Okay. Yep. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye.